Last week we began a new sermon series on the book of Hebrews. And if you were not here and you'd like to catch up on that, I'd be happy to share an outline with you. Of course, the sermons are posted online. You can listen to those anytime that you're out and wish to catch up. But this morning we'll be resuming in chapter 1 some of what we heard last week and then just a little bit more. But in the way of recapping that series, if this is your first Sunday hearing on Hebrews with us, last week we saw that the author of Hebrews, whoever that may be, we don't know, launched out of the gate with a doctrine of revelation. How God reveals Himself. How God speaks to His people. And this morning, right after that introduction of how He launches through the gates, He continues to come boldly and clearly with a doctrine of the person and work of Jesus. His words are short. His words are reflective of the Old Testament, quoting the Old Testament numerous times in chapter 1 and throughout the book of Hebrews. This morning we pick up just a fraction of that. A portion of what I left out of the scripture reading, I want you to know, was in our service earlier as a part of our call to worship. Words from the Old Testament about Jesus. And I'll be reading verses 3 through 6 just prior to those Old Testament quotations. Give your attention to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful Word. After He had provided purification for sins... He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son. Today I have become your father. Or again... I will be his father, and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Let's pray that God would bless our understanding of his word. Lord, would you take these words written long ago? by an author unknown to us, but divinely used by you to speak for our good, for our edification, for our strengthening of our faith, that we might persevere in the faith. Do that, Lord. We ask and we pray for the good of your church, for the glory of your name. Amen. You may remember, as I do, in the year 2019, right as everything was shutting down with COVID. A little war of words broke out on Twitter and on social media. Younger people will remember this more perhaps than older ones. But it was a war of words between fast food restaurants. And that war of words would end up being called the chicken wars. Anybody remember this? 
It's when suddenly Popeyes came out with a new chicken sandwich. And they decided to come out boldly and clearly and assert with confidence that they were the makers of the first chicken sandwich and the best chicken sandwich. Well, Chick-fil-A, who had the first chicken sandwich and the best chicken sandwich, <laughs> responded on social media with Twitter and said, not so fast. And people liking a good fight, as most of us do, just fan the flames. The Popeye's people came out and said, this is the best chicken sandwich we've ever had. And then the Chick-fil-A people took great offense. Kentucky Fried Chicken tried to jump into the argument. <laughs> Bojangles tried to jump in, and then all the other people. And I read this week that chicken sales during that season increased, I think it was 420%. It crashed the availability of chicken, the supply. It affected the prices, and, and some of you remember all this. Uh, there were actually fist fights at chicken restaurants between people trying to get a sandwich that had limited supply. I think someone was even shot, maybe even killed over a chicken sandwich. So two things we take away from that is people love chicken. And a lot of times people are just looking for a fight to jump into. That's probably another sermon for another day. But here's, here's a truth from that to apply to our subject this morning. Chicken is a funny example of things that we will claim are superior to others. We'll all jump in that argument about who has the best chicken sandwich or who has the best French fries. That's playful, right? No one's really offended personally by those claims of superiority. Who has the superior chicken sandwich? But in our culture, in our American culture in which we're living right now, you know that it does not welcome any claims of superiority or of exclusivity to say that with confidence one thing is right, one thing is true, one thing is better. In our culture, you will be canceled if you do those things, right? Right. So here's the question as we jump into Hebrews chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. But what if those claims of superiority are true. What if it's true? Not about the chicken sandwich, but about the one that the author of Hebrews declares is superior to everything creation has ever known. The world will respond to that as fighting words. You can't say that. You can't put your faith in that person of Jesus over and above other options and other people. You can't do that. It's rude. Uh, it's alienating of people. And yet that's precisely what the author of Hebrews does and intends to do. He intends to say, as you'll see and as you've already heard this morning, Jesus is superior. Jesus has surpassed everyone and everything. Therefore, he concludes... Put your trust in Him. 
Put your faith in him and persevere in that faith. Do not let it go no matter how much the world will bark at you to be canceled or will try to shut you down or will try to shut you up. Persevere in your faith in Jesus. That's the point of the book of Hebrews. Three simple points for you this morning as we consider these few verses. The first is this. Jesus is the Son of God, according to Scripture. Number two, Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. And then point number three, Jesus is superior to angels. It's all what he says right here just in these three short verses. Concerning Jesus as the Son of God, he says this in the first part of verse 3. Let me read verse 3 again, and you're going to see there are three things said right here in this one passage about Jesus. At least three. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of His being, and sustaining all things by His powerful Word. So I told you that last week he comes out of the gate with a doctrine of revelation that God has spoken through his son. And now he's giving us a doctrine of Jesus, Jesus's person and his work. And he gives us three bold statements about Jesus right there in verse three. The first is that Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. Now, when you hear that, does that sound familiar at all? Jesus is the radiance of God's glory? Does it sound like Exodus 34 in the back of your mind? Listen to this. Concerning Moses, we're told in chapter 34 of Exodus, when Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. And when Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant, and they were afraid to come near to him. And the passage goes on to say he had to use a veil because the people couldn't take the radiance of his face by having been in the presence of the Lord. The Lord Jesus, the author of Hebrews says, He's referencing that same kind of imagery, that when you see the sun, he is the radiance himself of the glory of God. Then, he says of Jesus, he is the exact representation of God's being. Not that Jesus is kind of like God. Not that Jesus is God-ish or godly. He says that the Son, the Lord Jesus, is the exact representation of God's being. True story this week. Some of you know that for, what month are we? For nine months, we're in September. For nine months, I've been in the midst of a bathroom remodeling project. And I've got this book of illustrations that I can use from this horrific experience. So forgive me if I use one now. So this, this, week, um, this week, Pastor Paul did a Pastor Paul kind of thing. He, uh, he, found, uh, he found a vanity, a bathroom vanity, 
which boys, you know what that is. That's, that's like your sink and your table in your bathroom uh, where the water is connected. But, but Pastor Paul, he will do this. He will find amazing deals because Pastor Paul likes to save money. So long story short, <clears throat> I was in a, um, a local liquidator school store, and there it was, my new vanity. All I would have to do is to take this, this gorgeous piece of furniture home and cut a circle in the top of, of the solid wood that was the top of surface of this and then go buy a sink and, and just drop it in there. And so, um, I mean, Pastor Paul wouldn't do anything silly, right? So I, I gave, it a good, gave it a good looking. It was beautiful wood. I'll tell you that. Solid wood. Beautiful. And I've been around wood a little bit in my life. I was pretty confident what I was doing. But not so confident that I wouldn't phone a friend. So we have a, a gentleman in the congregation. I won't na name him, but... He knows wood. He, he builds furniture. So I decided to give him a phone call and shoot him a picture of my project. And said, now what blade do I need to, to cut this cleanly? Because I wouldn't want it to splinter, you know, being real wood and everything. And he said, you could use this or you could do that. And I said, that's great. He said, are you, are you sure it's real wood? I said, it's real wood, believe me. And I got a great deal on it at the liquidator store. And there was a little bit of question in his voice. But I was fully confident because, did I tell you I know a little bit about wood? So sure enough, I did everything that he said, just the way to do it. And, and it took about four seconds of drilling into that solid wood to realize that's not solid wood. That is MDF, medium density fiberboard. But here's the deal. They put this veneer on it that looks like real wood. It looks like the exact representation of wood. It's wood. And so I have an MDF vanity for sale if anyone would like one <laughs> with a big hole in it. No, actually, I think we can redeem it. That's another illustration for another day. But, but here's my point in telling you that story. Boy, we are suckers for veneers, for things that look right, that's, that's legit. And we fall for it frequently in this life. Things that, it can be people that we're just convinced, this, this person is legit, they are, they are the real deal. Or this thing, this opportunity, this whatever. We are suckers for veneer. Is that what the author of Hebrews is speaking when he says this about Jesus? Is he speaking with... Pastor Paul foolish, naive confidence about solid wood when he says what he says? Or by faith, do you believe that he really is speaking on behalf of God, testimony about the faithfulness of Jesus? He is the exact representation of God himself. Now listen, that is not new to the author of Hebrews. It should sound familiar to you a little bit. Just as Exodus 34 should have rung in your ears about the radiance of God's glory. John chapter 10, verse 30. The Lord Jesus says of himself, I and the Father are one. 
That's Jesus' own testimony. It's not just the testimony of the author of Hebrews. Jesus himself said it. Then in John chapter 15, verses 9 and 10, Jesus said of of himself, Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? That's Jesus' testimony. And we have this consistent testimony from all the apostles. You and I fall. We're suckers for veneer in this life. But in the Lord Jesus, He is no veneer of God. He is God Himself. And we're called to have confidence in that. He's not godly or God-ish. He is God Himself. That is the testimony of the author of Hebrews. Then thirdly, the third thing he says in that one verse about the Lord Jesus, he says that he is the sustainer of all of God's creation. Earlier, in the first two verses of Hebrews, he identified Jesus as the creator. The creator himself. And he says he is the sustainer who holds all things in creation together. Now, does that sound at all familiar? So far, he's referenced the imagery of Exodus 34. He's referenced the words of Jesus in John 10 and John 14. And now he says that in Jesus, all things hold together. Does that language sound familiar? It's the same thing that Paul says in Colossians chapter 1, verse 17. He says this. Speaking of Jesus, he says, He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. Together, And that imagery is almost like gravity. We don't know how, it's a mystery, but this gravitational force holds all things together. And so it is with the Lord Jesus. All things hold together in Him. It is a mystery, but it is the testimony that the Scriptures make of the Lord Jesus. He is the radiance of God's glory. He's the exact representation of God's being. He is the sustainer of all of God's creation. And then secondly, we know this, according to the author of Hebrews. Jesus is now seated at the right hand of God. Or what he says as the majesty. He calls God the majesty. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. Now, being seated, as it's described here, is at least two things. Being seated is being in a position of rest from finished work. That's what he says. Listen to the second half of verse 3. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of of the majesty in heaven. Jesus had finished his work. Do you remember what Jesus said on the cross? His words were, it is finished. And so the author of Hebrews is saying the same thing here. Jesus has finished his work. Having accomplished the purification of sins, Jesus sits down. Now, it's not unlike you. You have a a hard day of work. You come home. And many of you, you're ready to do one thing. You're ready to sit down. Or maybe you're ready to lie down. Because this day has gone on long enough. I'm going to sit. I'm going to rest. 
And maybe I'm going to observe, reflect on what I've done, on what the day has had. Jesus has finished his work, and the scriptures say he is seated in a position of rest from the work that he has accomplished, that he has achieved. And when you hear that being seated at the right hand of God the majesty, does that sound familiar at all? It sounds like the Apostles' Creed, doesn't it? He sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. This is where we get that claim from. That the Lord Jesus has finished his work. And what is the work that he's finished? Your purification from your sins. Now listen, you and I have to take this for what it says and what it means. Part of the reason that we're so anxious and fretful and fearful and worrisome in this life is because we really don't understand that the purification of our sins and from our sins is a finished work. Many of us get up every day and live life as if we're on a treadmill trying to achieve the forgiveness of our sins. We live that way. We act that way as Christians. There's a fearfulness, a fretfulness, an anxiety, a worry, because we've not rested in the truth that He has accomplished and achieved the purification of our sins. So chew on that today at lunch. Think about that truth. Jesus has finished a work. He has accomplished His work. And the author of Hebrews, who, remember, is calling these people to not give up their faith, to not walk away, but to persevere in faithfulness, this is what he leads with. This is what he wants to undergird them. The purification of your sins is accomplished. It's real. It's not hopefulness. It's faithfulness in taking Jesus in his word, that he has done what he has said he would do. Secondly, this seated position, not just one of rest from work, it's a seat of honor and authority to sit at the right hand of the king. And that's where Jesus is. He sits with the Godhead. It's a position of rest, it's a position of authority, and he is rightly there. And that's why we worship him this morning. That's why we sing of him. Because he is a part of the Godhead who has achieved and accomplished our purification from our sins. It is real and it is to be palatable for us. And then thirdly and lastly, the author of Hebrews wants these Christians who are growing weary in their faith, who are thinking about giving up, he says to them, he highlights that this Jesus who we worship is superior to angels. Now, that's a little bit odd. A friend of mine, when he preaches from this text, likes to highlight the fact that, you know, probably none of us in our culture and world are really preoccupied with angels. That's just not at the top of our list of issues. But it seems to have been for them. A little background context to this. Uh, the Essene Jews were a people of this time period who had a preoccupation with angel worship and with other characteristics that the author of Hebrews describes throughout his letter. And so likely, we don't know, remember, who the author or the audience specifically is, 
But there's really a reasonable argument to say he's probably talking to the Essene Jews who had a preoccupation with ancestors like Melchizedek, who you know is referenced later in Hebrews, with angel worship. They had all kinds of wonky views. And it's likely that those wonky views are, are what are leading them to say, let's just give this up and go back to being Jews again. That's likely some of what's going on here. And so the author of Hebrews, he makes the argument that Jesus is superior to angels. He is better than the angels that you're feeling inclined to worship. Angels are just not a real big theme in our life, at least not in the people that I know. When I was in seminary years ago, actually before that, when, when I was in high school, anybody remember... Precious moments, the fat little cheerful cherubs. I'm embarrassed to say I got my high school girlfriend one for her birthday or Christmas or something. And, and I guess you would have to Google it, younger people, to see what a, what a precious moments figurine was. But fat little cherubs with these big blue eyes, cute little things that I guess girls put on their mantles, maybe guys too, I don't know. Is that the imagery of an angel in the Bible? A fat little cute cherub with big eyelashes that flutter? You know, when angels are spoken of in the Bible, they're spoken of as being awesome. And people's response to them, number one, tends to be fearfulness. That's why frequently when an angel arrives on the scene, the first thing the angel says is what? Fear not. Because a human's inclination is to show reverence to the awesomeness that they see, to the power, to the might. They're inclined to want to worship the angel. When I was in seminary, years after my cheerful cherub experience, one of my classmates... Um, was a sculptor, and he brought to class. We'd been talking about angels a little bit in one of my classes, and we didn't know that he was a sculptor, but he brought to class a sculpture that he had made of a biblical angel, one who represented the characteristics. And I have several times through the years Googled it, it's, it's, even this week I did, trying to find where, where did that go? Is that, is that for sale? But it was this awesome, majestic-looking warrior of an angel holding a sword, ripped with muscles, six wings, all the descriptions of Scripture. And that stuck in my mind. I remember it all these years later. That's the kind of angel that is being talked about here. That's the kind of angel that those people believed was great and awesome and worthy of being worshipped. And what did the author of Hebrews say? As great as you think that angel that you want to worship is, Jesus is superior. The angels worship Jesus. It's not the other way around. Turn your attention from angel worship to worshiping the one true God, the Lord Jesus 
himself. He says Jesus has been given a superior name in verses 4 and 5, that Jesus is worshipped by the angels in verse 6. And again, this sounds like Acts chapter 4, verse 12. And Philippians chapter 2. Those passages, listen to this about the name. It says, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And then in Acts chapter 4, At the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus bears the name, the name of the Messiah, the promised one of the old. He is God in the flesh. And the author of Hebrews wants them to know, and the author of Hebrews wants us to know. Are you worshiping the wrong things? Is your faith weak and frail because it's misdirected into good-seeming things, but not in the one who can rightly receive your worship? Thirteen times in the book of Hebrews, thirteen times, the author says, he uses the word, better. That Jesus is better. He's better than angels. He's better than Moses. He's better than the prophets, better than the priests. The new covenant is better than the old covenant. Thirteen times he makes the argument that we are living in an era that is better than the era they're wanting to go back to. He's highlighting the superiority of Jesus And yet they just keep looking over their shoulder, so to speak, thinking, man, there were good times behind us. We had a place. We were a people. We had rhythms of life. We had feasts and festivals. Life wasn't so bad. And now that we're following Jesus as Christians, the culture wants to cancel us. They want to erase us. And these people were compromising. They were thinking about cashing it all in. Because they didn't believe that Jesus was better than what they had left behind. At least not yet they hadn't. And isn't that hard? Isn't it hard to try to talk with someone that that thing one is better than thing two? Isn't that a hard conversation to have? Isn't it impossible to convince people, unless you're a really good salesman, that you can be trusted on that? I'll finish with this story. Years ago, many years ago, I don't know how many years ago, 15 plus years ago, I was walking through Sam's Club with some of my family. And you know they have movies for sale in Sam's Club. I think I've told you this story before. And I saw it. There it was. One of the greatest movies for a child to watch. Not just a movie, but a trilogy. Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh, you've seen the movie. You love the movie. And I see the Raiders of the Lost Ark, and my oldest son is with me. And at that time, I think he's about eight years old. Price tag on that Raiders of the Lost Ark was expensive. 
But Raiders of the Lost Ark, y'all, for a boy, an eight-year-old boy who had never seen it before. And in my mind, I did what all dads always do. They, they picture how, how great this is going to go. They're going to sing praises of my name when I introduce them to these movies. So I grabbed the movies and I went up to my son, who while I had been drooling over that purchase, had found something else that caught his eye. And I said, son, I've got great news. We're taking this home and we're going to watch this this weekend. And in his little hands, he was holding a Batman Beyond cartoon. And he looked at the Raiders of the Lost Ark volumes and he said, no, I want this. Now, those of you who don't know, Batman Beyond is a cartoon. It was a 20-minute cartoon DVD. And I'm like, son, you, you don't understand. This is better. And he's like, I, I, I really like Batman Beyond. And, and there I was with my eight-year-old son trying to argue that thing one is better than thing two. So I did what maybe dads do. What did I do? I bought both. Because <laughs> we were going to prove ourselves. And uh, I, I actually revisited this with him in the last year or two. I said, do you remember that episode? He was like, he hung his head. And he's like, yeah, I, re I remember that. And so speaking to him as a young adult now, he's 23 years old. I said, so which was better, son? He's like, Raiders of the Lost Ark. <laughs> Raiders of the Lost Ark. Sometimes in the Christian faith, it can feel that way, talking about the Lord Jesus with people. We're trying to convince them that Jesus really is better, but they don't have eyes to see. Not easily persuaded, not by our reason, not by our power. It takes the Lord himself to open hearts and minds and eyes to know who he is. But Jesus is better, y'all. Jesus is superior to everything in this life. And you and I can be like the eight-year-old clamoring to things. I, I need this boyfriend. I need this girlfriend. I need them to be my fiancé. I need this job. I need this money. I need this promotion. I need this vacation house. I need this storybook story that I want to be true of me. And this morning, the author of Hebrews would kindly look at you and he'd say, Jesus is better. Jesus is superior to the thing you're hoping for and wanting. Persevere in faithfulness. Don't lose sight of Him. He is all that you have. He is all that you need. John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus answered the people and said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That is an exclusive claim that this culture will seek to cancel. But what will you do with that claim this morning? Do you believe it to be true? Is Jesus better? Is, is Jesus superior? The scriptures testify that he is. And this morning, we're going to come to the table believing that he is. And so I invite you, if, if you can honestly admit in your heart that you've been grasping things as if they're better than the promises of God and the person of Jesus, this morning would be a good time to repent of that 
and to let go of those things, those petty things, and to come to the table and to partake of Him by faith, really believing that He is better than the petty things of this life. Let's pray together and then we'll sing. Our Father and our God, would you help us to believe this? Would you help us to live according to it? That we would see that you really are better than the created things of this life. You are the creator, the redeemer, and the sustainer of all things. And you uphold all things by your powerful word. So, Lord, would you do that? Would you uphold us? We ask this, we pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen.